Let's thank these guys for playing for us this morning. Thank you guys so much. As you guys know by now, on Sunday morning we'd like to mix it up with some discussion and teaching. And so I need you guys, if you're a discussion leader at your table, come grab a discussion sheet. And if your table is lacking a discussion leader, you guys in the back could turn down all the microphones except for this one. All the mics except for this one. I don't want any, like, feedback up here. All right. Now... We are doing a series called, uh, we started a series actually back in, um, we started a series back in the, when the fall semester began called Why We Don't Believe, and we've explored several questions that people have about the faith uh, and doubt, questions on suffering, questions on the exclusivity of Christianity and things like that, and so we've now transitioned into a new part of the series called Why You Should Believe. Now. So we're looking at reasons for the faith. And so um, today we're talking about something I think is really significant, but I'll introduce this by telling you a story. Um, when I was uh, in college, I was an intern at a church up in Arlington, Texas. And um, when I was working at that church, there was a youth pastor by the, guy, by the name of Joe that I worked with. And um, one night we're at his house. We're having a big youth group party at his house. And um, there was a girl that was there that was a foreign exchange student. She came from Germany. And, uh, and she was um, there with us for the summer. And great girl, really lively, but she just wasn't a Christian. She had no desire to become a Christian. And it was a conversation that took place that night where I really heard something really profound. Because she said, she had the question, okay, how do I know that Christianity is the only way? And the response that the youth pastor that I worked with gave, I think, is really profound. Here was, this was his response. He said, Christianity is the only religion that deals with the problem of sin. And it's true. He's right. Apart from Christianity, we have no explanation for and no solution for the problem of sin. And so if someone asks you that question, if someone asks you the question, okay, how do I really know that Christianity is the only true religion, you can say that statement. Look, nothing else deals with the problem of sin. Nothing else explains what sin and evil really is. Only Christ has an answer for that. Other religions might try to, you know, explain it or have a solution for it, but it really boils down to just working real hard in your own flesh which leads to pride. And so Christianity is the only religion that has an explanation for and solution for sin. This brings us to our first uh, three questions for your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one through three for your table discussions. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, I would like to have some feedback from some of these, uh, particularly question number two. Question number two. The question that I want feedback from 
is uh, what reasons have you heard unbelievers give for why things are broken in the world? What kind of discussion did you have on that question? That's probably the hardest one of the three. Yes. Okay. Okay, so if there was a God, then things would be perfect. Okay? There's evil, therefore there can't be a God. Okay? What else? What else? Okay, why did God let this happen? Perfect example. What else? Anything else on that question? Okay. Right. Just by chance. Okay. Okay. All right, number three. I intentionally said don't give the impact definition because that's what all of you would do if I didn't say that. And I am proud. But what's the, uh, what'd you say, Jessica? Okay, estrangement from God. That is a great word. Estrangement from God. That's a really big word. I'm glad you used that word. That makes us all feel smarter today because of that. Uh, perfect example. Separation from God. Estrangement from God. What else did you come up with for question number three? Yes. Okay, acting out of self-interest, self-centeredness. Jake? Like think, say, or do that dishonors God? Okay, anything that you say that dishonors God. Okay, there, there are about 20 definitions of sin, and they're all correct. Sin is multifaceted. And we're going to look at one aspect of that today. But here's the deal. Everyone, listen up. Everyone sees something wrong with the world. Everyone. Even the atheist sees something wrong with the world. There's a certain expectation that we have of here's the way things are supposed to be, but things aren't like that. Right? You see this whenever a tragedy happens, even like Hurricane Katrina. This, this great tragedy happens and people ask the question, why? This is not supposed to happen. This many lives should not be taken just like that, just so randomly. This kind of suffering shouldn't happen. Everybody agrees that there is something wrong with the world. We just don't call it the same thing. That's the bottom line. You're also going to hear people say things like, um, people that believe in evolution and don't believe that there's a God, um, their expectation is that because we're evolving, that means that morality is a part of that. And so what they will say is things should constantly get better and better and better as we evolve to this higher state of consciousness. The only problem with that is real life. That's not what we see in real life. There were more people, listen up, there were more people killed as a result of war in the last century than all the previous centuries combined, if I hear my figures correctly. So we can't say that we're evolving, we're improving, because if, if we were, then how do you explain all this evil, crime, and war? You can't explain that. Um, I've wanted this series to be kind of like a college prep course for you guys. So I'm going to give you things you're going to hear in college and how to think through those ideas. Okay, so one of the things that you're going to hear when you get to college, I heard this when I was in college, is this. You will hear that people are basically good. That in their core, people are basically good. But here's what they will say. 
They'll say, people are basically good, but it's society that messes us up. Now, hang on a second. Do you not see the logical flaw in that thinking? Just help me out here. Okay, individually we're good, but society messes us up. Okay, so what... Yes, Matt. Okay, exactly. People are society, right? Without people, there's no society, okay? But you will hear this in college, if not already. Now, how are... Here's the question it raises. How are we individually good, but collectively evil? If I look at you and say, okay, you're individually good, you're basically good in your core, but if I add you, who is good, to you, who is also good, and to you, who's good, and to you, who's good, now we have evil. How does that work? How does that work? And so you can see how, listen up, you can see how their explanation for evil just totally breaks down. Because what will happen is, they'll say things like, okay, that guy is that way because of how his father treated him. Okay, well then, how was that guy that way? Well, because of how his father treated him. Okay, well then, how was... And you just go backwards, 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 and it's still people, right? At some point, we've got to acknowledge like that we're sinful and that we're evil, and nobody wants to do that. We're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 3. Turn your Bibles there. If we're going to understand the problem of sin, we've got to go back to the fall. Not the season, but the event in the Bible, and Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Here's what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will surely die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Just a weird, really weird scene, right? We're naked. So they, so, they sewed, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Your next three questions, four, five, and six, go ahead and discuss those at your tables. I will suggest for number four, go back to chapter two and read part of that and figure out the answer to number four. Okay, let's discuss this passage for a bit. Let's discuss this passage for a moment. You guys are very familiar with this story, but here's what I want you to get from this story. There are so many little subtleties of this story that I think are so profound, and uh, the main one I want you to get, of course, is just their response to their sin. Because it's so weird to me that there's just two people on earth And they are unclothed, 
And uh, as soon as they sin, there's this feeling of shame. There's this feeling of not just literal nakedness, but figurative nakedness. Like we're, we're hiding from God. There, there's that response to sin. It's the first sin. It's the first time anyone ever hid from God, obviously. But I want you to get this from this passage, if anything at all. Every sin that we commit leads to separation from God. But not just separation from God, but separation from other people. So your sin has like a vertical consequence between you and God, but also a horizontal consequence between you and other people. This is why whenever you see, um, wherever you see sin, you see broken relationships. That's the result of it. That's the result of it. So I love uh, Jesse's definition, estrangement from God. It's a perfect definition. It is separation from God. That's what sin leads to. Now, someone defines sin this way. Get them my next quote here. Someone defines sin this way. She said this, The essence of sin is not the violation of laws, but a wrecked relationship with God, one another, and the whole created order. You see, most of you in the room, you see sin as breaking a rule. And that's all you see it as. You, you don't see it as breaking a relationship. You don't see sin as a violation of a relationship. You just see it as breaking a rule. And to me, if God has given us anything to show us what sin really is, He has given us the marriage relationship. I had the chance to do someone's wedding yesterday here at the church. Actually, one of our leaders, uh, Chris, got married yesterday. Um, so yeah, give him a hand. He can't hear you, by the way, when you clap. But, you know, he can hear us. He's on the plane. But he got married yesterday. And... Uh, and if, 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 if anything is true of marriage, it's this. God's given us marriage to point us to Christ. God's given us this human relationship to point us to the truth of our relationship with Him. And here's how that works. Whenever you... Let's take, let's take a couple that's married, okay? When a couple gets married, um, if someone eventually cheats on the other person, it, it's a profound violation of the relationship. We all agree with that. It's not just a rule. Like, I, I, someone doesn't cheat and we don't say, okay, you violated the uh, whatever commandment. And, uh, and we don't leave it there. We say, how could you do that? This distrusting, God-given relationship. And you just wrecked the whole relationship. <clears throat> so we understand this idea of sin when it comes to our relationships. But when it comes to our walk with God, we don't see it that way. We just see it as, yeah, I broke a rule. Not as a complete wreck relationship with God. Another way to say it would be this. Every sin, next slide. Every sin, listen to this. Every sin is an attempt to meet a desire that can only be fulfilled by God. Most of you see sin as just all the way over here, and God is all the way over here. And it's true that yes, God is holy, He is separated from sin. But here's what I want you to get this morning. That every sin that you and I commit is rooted in this desire for God. And you are looking in the wrong place for fulfillment. Every sin that you and I commit is an attempt, a human attempt, to meet a desire that can only be fulfilled by God. That's what sin is. Another way to define sin is this. Next slide. Sin is seeking an identity apart from God. 
You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are looking for an, an identity. Now, that might seem like really abstract and kind of a lofty thought, but here's what I mean by that. Sin is seeking an identity apart from God. What I mean by that is they are seeking happiness, significance, meaning apart from God. You can do this through a relationship. If, if you're in a relationship with someone right now and you're dating this person, um, if your entire happiness is wrapped up in this relationship, this is idolatry. This is, you're finding happiness, significance, identity, meaning apart from God. And so, it's not just that we sin, but we sin even in our response to our sins. So it's not that we just like commit sins and that's it. But we actually sin in our response to our sin. It's like sin stacked on top of sin. And so I want to show you some examples of how we do this in our own lives. The simple response is to sin. The first one is this. This might seem strange as a response to sin, but I'm, I'll explain what I mean by this. Education. If, if you go to your school this week, here's what people will say, if there's a bullying problem in your school, they will say, well, how are we going to solve the bullying problem? Well, we've got to educate the kids. We've got to educate them. If they just have the right information, they'll make the right decision because we're basically good as people, right? Right? And so this is why, and you guys probably laugh at this stuff, like whenever you go to your school and there's a problem with, like, teen pregnancy or a problem with... Um, you know, racism or the problem with bullying, what happens? There's the big school assembly. There's the big poster on the wall. There's the big campaign. We've got to stop bullying, so we're going to start a stop bullying. Say no to bullying campaign. As if that's really going to solve things, right? As if, as if the bullies of the school are going to be like having a kid up against his locker saying, like, give me your lunch money. And there's a poster above that says, sin of the bullying, and he goes, oh, I guess I'm a bully. And he lets the kid down and just kind of walks away. Like, that's really going to happen, right? What was that? Okay, that's for the sound effects. So you, you see how in your schools, there's this idea that the answer to racism, bullying, um, teen pregnancy, drugs, AIDS, all those things that will say we can conquer it by education. If we just give them the right information, we can conquer these problems. Now, I also see this in my, in my, even my son's cartoons. Uh, my son's cartoons, cartoons today are completely boring. Okay? They're all educational. Have you noticed this? You guys watch cartoons still, don't you? But they're all educational. They're all educational. I, I personally, what's up? I personally miss Sylvester the cat chasing Tweety Bird all over the place. Okay, and it's entertaining, it's fun, and it was educational because it taught me to be thankful that I'm not a bird being chased by a cat. I'm serious. So education is everywhere, right? The answer to everything is education. Right? Now, here's the thing. Listen up. Education, this is where I think your schools have a tough time with this because education might change behavior, but it doesn't change the heart. 
Education can change some external things, but it doesn't change the heart. Next thing we do is we minimize sin. We minimize sin. It's not that big a deal. It's not a big deal. It's just, it was just this or it was just that. I'm going to run through these last ones real quick because I want to get to the questions here at the end. We also justify sin. Well, I did it because of this or because of that. We justify sin. We also blame people for our sin. This is what Adam and Eve did. We blame people. Well, it's because of what this person did or this person said. That's why I did this. We blame people. There's also the partial confession. This is a really clever way to deal with sin. It's sinful, but it's still really clever because what you do is you acknowledge part of the sin, right? Well, yeah, I know that that part was wrong, but the other part, not so bad. Partial confession. We partially confess things to God. That's a really clever way to deal with sin. The last one is shame. This is the one that we all struggle with. Uh, ever have the issue whenever you get caught in the act of doing something wrong and you're not really sorry for the sin, but you're sorry you got caught? Or you're sorry for the social consequences of whatever that sin might be? Well, my friends are going to think that I'm this or I'm this way. And so you're just sorry you got caught. There's not this real grieving that takes place in your heart because of your sin against God. It's really about, yeah, this made me look really stupid in front of my friends. And it's all about shame. And really, when you have that response to sin, it's still all about you. It's still all about you and your pride. The shameful response to sin. Now, what I want to do this morning is uh, I try to think of questions... Because if, if it's true that all sin is idolatry, and it is, every sin is basically you taking God off the throne and placing something else on the throne. And sometimes what you place on the throne is yourself. Like you become your own idol. And so if, if, if every sin is idolatry at its core, I wanted to give you some questions to take home today to think through. Um, here's some questions you can think through in your own life for identifying your idols. Because if you're going to confess these to Jesus at some point, you've got to be able to identify them. You have to identify them. And so what I did was, this week I posted uh, just on Facebook, hey, who has, some, who has some good questions for idolatry? Here's some of the questions that people came up with that are uh, part of TBC. And I didn't use all of them. too many to use, but I used as many as I could. Uh, the first question is this. What do you want to be known for? What is the thing that you want people to know you as? Oh, you're the funny guy. You're the guy that just makes everyone laugh. Or you're the person who's really, really, really beautiful. Or, or you're the fashion guru. You're the person that's always, like, in the mix with fashion. You wear the, the latest thing. That's just what you want to be known as. Or sports. You're the athlete. That's who you are. What do you want to be known as? Secondly, what kinds of things make you angry? I'm not referring to, like, righteous anger. I'm referring to, like, just make you angry, okay? What things, like, really get under your skin, all right? What are those things? Because here's the, here's the deal. Whatever those things are that make you angry, behind that I can say this, that there's probably an idol somewhere. There's probably an idol somewhere. Thirdly, what are you most fearful of? What are you most fearful of? I'm not talking about the dark or monsters, in my son's case. But what 
what are you most fearful of? What are you most fearful of? I'll be really honest with you. Um, this is, uh, I think one of my biggest fears has always been just failure, right? Um, not so much in school when I was in school, but once you get out of school and you start actually working for a living, um, every guy has this fear. Every guy has this fear on some level. If a guy's not admitting that fear, he's just afraid of admitting the fear of failure. Okay? But let me be honest with you. Um, no matter what your job is, especially for a guy, the job kind of becomes part of your identity, and you sort of gauge yourself based on like success, lack of success, failure. And, and I'll be honest with you that there, there are times where I sit there and go, man, like my job is an idol. My job is an idol. And it sounds weird because this is ministry, so you think it's okay, but it's not okay. Because I can't sit there and measure my significance and self-worth based on my success or lack of success. Because that's all about me. That's a big one for me. Fear of failure. Comparing yourself to other people, that falls right in line with that. Uh, Fourthly, what are you bitter about? Now, here's how I define bitterness. Bitterness is anger at God. Sunken into your soul. Okay? So what I mean by that is, it's not like you're just angry all the time and like spout off hatred towards God. But there's like this underlying, beneath the surface, just seething bitterness towards God that you have. You know what I'm talking about? And so when someone mentions that thing, you kind of are reminded of it. And so it's kind of like you're angry at God, but it's sort of like this underneath the surface thing. You're just bitter. And so whatever that thing is that you're bitter about, you feel like God's holding out on you. I would say whatever you're bitter about, behind that thing, there's some idolatry going on. Another one. What words haunt you? I'll explain this one too. What words haunt you? When I was in uh, seventh grade, I was the, the third of three boys. Anybody else the youngest in their family in the room? Youngest in the family? I feel your pain. I feel all of your pain. Now, I was a third of three boys, so I got beat up a lot, obviously. Um, my oldest brother was like twice my size. He's still twice my size. But imagine him being five years older, and I'm obviously younger, so he's like four times my size at that point. He was a star football player on our local high school team, uh, defensive tackle. He weighed like, like 210, he's like 6'1", he's real massive, you know. And when I was in seventh grade, I weighed like 37 pounds, okay? And so one day I go to the school to um, hang out with him and his football buddies. He's going to work out. I'm just going to watch. And I'm like, I can be a weight for you if you want, uh, if you guys need extra weight on your bar or whatever. But, um, but so he, um, we're all kind of hanging out in the gym of their school, and one of his friends uh, said to me, he goes, he's like, hey, who's this? And my brother goes, this is my little brother. And he goes, he goes, what happened to him? And I'm like sitting there going, like, what do you mean, you know? And, and his response was, like, he's like, look how skinny he is, you know? And they all start laughing. Like the entire football team just starts laughing at me and how skinny I am, you know? And I kid you not, like, I was sitting there, like, just terrified, like, oh, they're going to kill me. They're going to, like, eat me for lunch. And, and so I'm standing there, and I remember, like, this switch went off inside of my head. 
that said, no one's ever going to say that to me ever again. And it was like literally at that point, I was asking, hey, how do do I get bigger? How do I work out? How do I lift weights and get bigger and, and so on? And so throughout high school, I would say there was like this obsession with no one's ever going to say those words to me ever again. Ever again. I'd beat them up. No, I'm kidding. In the Lord, you know. <laughs> but here's the deal. Here's the deal, though. What words haunt you? Did someone say something to you that just it's haunted you, and you have an idol now? You've got an idol now. Next question. What do you most easily spend your money on? What do you easily spend your money on? This is an easy one. Next question. Next question. This is a really good one that I think Kim had posted to me. It says this. In what areas of your life are you dissatisfied with how God is running things? That's a more broad question. In what areas of your life are you dissatisfied with how God is running things? Because here's the deal. If you are saying to God, you don't like how he is running your relationship life, or your money life, or your friend life, if you don't like how God's doing those things, I would say that that's where your idol is going to sort of crop up. Okay? That's where you might have a chance for idolatry to take root. Right there. Dissatisfaction with how God's doing things. Then the last question, I love that someone put this question on the Facebook deal. At first I laughed and I thought, no, they're serious about this question. How many pictures of just yourself have you uploaded to Facebook? Great question. Great question. Because here's the question of that. Okay, why? why? Why is there this drive to like make sure that everyone sees you like from every angle of your face? Okay? What, what's the point of all this? I understand like friends and all this kind of stuff, but a great question. A great question. I'm going to add one to the list that I don't have on the screen, but here's my last question that I want to leave with you uh, to think about. Listen up. Where, where do you ultimately find your happiness? Where do you ultimately find your happiness? Whatever the answer to that question is, apart from Christ, you could say there's an idol there. There's an idol there. Now, what I want to do is I want to read you a quote uh, by a really smart guy. And then um, you'll have two more questions to close out with at your tables. Uh, But this is a quote. This is by C.S. Lewis. And all of his quotes kind of make your brain hurt. So uh, just listen. Listen really intently to this quote, and I hope you get this. He's talking about our response basically to idolatry, how we handle it, what our proper response should be, what our improper response often is. He says this, The almost impossibly hard thing is to hand over your whole self to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, our personal happiness centered on money, on pleasure, ambition, and hoping that despite this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you cannot do. 
use this really cool picture. If, if I am a grass field, all the cutting will keep the grass less, but will not produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be plowed up and re-sown. Here's what he's saying. That so many of us try to, we forget that to deal with idolatry, we, we have to offer our entire selves to Christ. And so what we try to do, many of us, is try to keep our independence from God and keep basically ourselves sort of intact while we're still pursuing all these things. And then we try to just manage our behavior. We just try to do good things, do good works. That's the attempt that most people make to deal with these kinds of issues. He's saying that Christ says we cannot even have, we can't have this reaction to our sin or idolatry. You've got to be completely re-sown. And so my challenge to you this morning, if you're a believer and you're hearing these words, that even in your, even in your faith, even as a Christian, your idolatry has to continually be revisited, confessed, turned from, turning back towards God. Even as a Christian, that is still necessary. If you're not a believer this morning, if you're someone that's not following Christ yet, then the biggest sin that you have in your life right now is the sin of unbelief. And my challenge to you is that take care of that sin first. Believe in Christ. Believe in the resurrection. Turn your life over to Him completely. And when you do that, He changes your behavior. He changes you. You don't change so you can come to Christ. You come to Him so He can change you. And so God doesn't want to just change your behavior. He wants to change your heart. He wants, he wants all of you. He wants your heart. Two more questions to close out with, and when you're done with that, pray at your tables, you'll be dismissed. 